Oftentimes when the choir sings, as they just did, I just want to sit with the truth for a little bit. Never once has he forsaken me. I'll tell you, there's some times in my life I felt like he did. (laughs) But in time, by his grace, those moments were actually the times and seasons of my life that his faithfulness was most powerful. I see that in hindsight now. Sometimes you don't see things clearly in the moment. This is the one to whom I will look. This is what God said, Isaiah. He who is contrite of heart. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is contrite of heart. Not arrogant in heart. Not, I'm good, don't really need anything from the Lord. Who's contrite in heart. I I think that means who's teachable. Jesus taught a parable that a sower goes out to sow seed, and the seed falls on all sorts of different kind of soils. Some's rock-hard soil, some looks like it's healthy soil, but it's just about a half inch deep. And others has uh, got weeds in it, and initially things spring up fast. I mean, it looks healthy. This is a changed life. Everything about my life is different, but in time, the heat of the sun and, uh, well, Jesus said, the cares of the world. The weeds choke out what was thought to be fruitful, but some fell on good soil, and it produced some twice as much, four times as much, ten times as much. So fruitfulness is always the mark of God's work in your life. Listen to it again. Here is the one to whom I will look, he who is contrite of heart and trembles at my word. So in just a moment, I'm going to share scripture with you, and by God's grace, and I'm asking for his help, preach a message that is in line with the truth of what God says in his, his word. We're going to cast seed, and I would love for you to just take a moment and take inventory and ask God's help, saying, how, um, what condition are you in to receive it? Does that make sense? you stand? And hear the word of the Lord. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 18. Sometimes I think it's good just to hear it. In a moment, I'll ask you to really turn there. Some of you are already there. But just hear it. As they were coming home, As David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities in Israel with singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, songs of joy, and musical instruments. And they sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands And David has struck down his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And they have ascribed to me thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul 
eyed David from that day on. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the one to whom you will look, who is contrite in heart. And I'm asking in Jesus' name for many of us to be contrite in heart, meaning you have provided an example in your word of someone who the trajectory of their life is increasingly headed to disaster and to destruction. And it's not just the destruction that's going to come to Saul's life. It's, it's the impact, the influence, the ripple effect that he's going to end up having on a lot of other lives. So I'm asking that we would be contrite enough to, to at least admit that we have all the potential in the world to live in the same state of heart and mind and soul that Saul is here in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So help us as we think through um, your word is alive, and your word is active. Your word is accurate, not just in diagnosing a problem, but in putting forth the help and healing to what is distorted in our hearts. May we be a people who Take seriously and soberly your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 18, you've heard verses 6 through 9. We're going to study a little bit more than that. If you could change one thing about your life, what would you change? If it was just in your power to bring about a change in your life, what change would you make? And if that change were made, would it lead to an increased dependence upon God in your life or a reduced dependence on Him and would it lead to the furthering of his kingdom? I think those are helpful ways to think about uh, what we really need in life. If Saul was asked that question here in 1 Samuel 18, if you could bring about one change, what would it be? I don't think his answer, answer would be spiritually very healthy. Right? He would say, I want David gone. And I want the songs to be focused on me. My junior year of high school, I was... Uh, in, uh, I believe the name of the class was Etymology and SAT Prep, uh, first semester, and I ended up in the class with a good number of my friends, and we were all kind of sitting together in the class, second period if I'm remembering it correctly, and I was sitting amongst a group of uh, guys that did not really take the material seriously. It was an elective, and uh, they, they talked a lot. They were a bit sarcastic and uh, more interested in getting the guys around them to laugh than in preparing to take the SAT. And about a week into school, I was a bit late packing up my things and I was headed out of the class and the teacher met me at the door, kind of stood in the door and I couldn't get around so I just stopped and looked at her and uh, she said to me, looked me in the eyes and she said, don't go that way. 
It's the only exit in the classroom, so I didn't understand what she was saying. I looked around. I'm going to just climb out the window. I don't quite know what you're getting at. She said, don't go that way where you don't take anything seriously. We've got Saul here in 1 Samuel 18, his example before us, and I think that's what I want to say to us today. Don't go this way. Don't go the way that Saul goes. Why do you think um, we have all of this information about King Saul as we study through the life of David? Because he's an example for us. You know, there's some men and women in the Bible you learn by their example what to do, but there's some men and women in the Bible you learn by their example what not to do. And King Saul, we have all this information about him because this is the way a lot of people do go. Before we just say yes, I think that's true, I want us to really wrestle with this for a moment. The way that Saul goes is the way a lot of people go. And I believe that you live in a world that if you go the way of Saul, it's pretty much applauded by everybody around you. Saul is absolutely eaten up with envy. We can see that, right? Envy is one of those things, if it takes root in your heart, it will choke out just about everything else. Envy will choke out any appetite you have for God. Envy will spill over to most every relationship that you have. Envy will come to dominate your, your mind. Envy will be like a pair of glasses that you put on, and everything you see in life is through the lens of envy. So I want to use the passage that we're looking at from 1 Samuel 18 and really ask a couple of questions, three in total. One, we're just going to simply use the passages to say, what is envy? What is it? And then we'll say, what does envy do to a person? And then third and most importantly, we'll say, how can I be delivered from envy through the Lord Jesus Christ? So let's start with the first question and simply this, what is envy? Well, we have here before us in 1 Samuel 18, this scene, they're coming home. I was thinking about that verse this morning. As they were coming home, envy is so powerful, it follows you wherever you go. I mean, Saul's been in the battlefield. Saul's been with the army. And now Saul's going home. Envy is something, if, you, if it's taken root in your life, it's with you wherever you go. Sometimes we just think what we really need is a change of scenery or a change of circumstances. That is not the way to overcome envy. In other words, that won't be the answer to the third question. How do we be delivered from envy? Say, well, I'll be delivered from envy when I just have more. No, you won't. Can I just tell you this on the front end? No, you won't. Who are the first people who demonstrate envy in the Bible? Adam and Eve. Where were they? When envy rose up in them. They're in Eden. They're walking with God. They have an awesome marriage. All of God's blessings are before them. And then the serpent comes along and says, God's kind of holding out on you, isn't he? And friends, that's the question that's at the root of envy. This idea that God's holding out on Maybe you envy somebody else's life, or maybe you envy the life you thought you were going to have, but now you're living a reality that's not what you thought it would be, and you become 
eaten up with envy. In this scene, uh, it's, it's actually a time of triumph. They're coming home. David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of the cities of Israel with singing and dancing to meet King Saul. So imagine how stressful those days had been. We, we read and studied a, a, a Goliath, and he's coming, and, and everybody in all the cities know, here's the deal. There's going to be a representative battle, right? Uh, Goliath is a champion, the man in between, as uh, Hebrew literally means, and he's the champion of the Philistines. And you just imagine the, uh, the, the, those, uh, the women and the children and the cities that, that uh, are awaiting news and depending on how the battle goes, the rest of their life's going to go. I mean, the stakes are significant. I've been reading recently, uh, Cornelius Ryan is a historian of World War II primarily, and he wrote a book decades ago called uh, The Last Battle. And it's all about the Russians' advance uh, into Germany and the capture of Berlin. And y'all, that was rough. It was rough for the cities that were conquered. Rough for the army, rough for the citizens. All manner of awful things took place. And that's been what's been possible to them in their cities. The reason they've been in their cities is in those days, the cities are behind the fortified walls. It's our refuge. And now they're coming out of the cities. Why? Because David was victorious. And it's a celebration unlike anybody in any of those cities has ever seen. But Saul, in the midst of the celebration we're told in verse 8, was very angry. The Hebrew term that's translated into my English, very angry in verse 8, it means a red hot anger. He's seething with anger in what ought to have been the most triumphant and joyful of times. Notice the trap Saul's laid for himself. This is when you live for the approval of other people, this is the snare. Let's think about this for a moment. They say Saul has struck down his thousands. Question, was that even true? I mean, what has Saul actually done? They're giving him more credit than he actually deserves, isn't he? Aren't they? I mean, that song starts up and Saul likes it at first. Saul has struck down his thousands. Can we repeat that? On a loop. Saul has struck down his thousands. He's not struck down anybody. All Saul has done is sat there day after day after day when the champion of the Philistines comes out, who's the tallest they've got, the mightiest they've got, and who's the head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel? It's, it's Saul. You remember that's why they wanted a king to begin with. We want a champion who will fight for us and deliver us. And so Saul has sat there for weeks on end doing nothing. And here's the snare when you live for the approval of others. Even when people give you more credit than you deserve, you're still not happy with it. They're saying something about him that's not actually true. And they're saying something about him that God would not have said about Saul. And this is a check for us. Man, when you start living on the basis of your reputation in light of thing, people saying things about you that, that aren't actually true, man, that's a snare. It's a trap. So again and again, uh, uh, probably the, the, the most frequent thing I say as a, as a pastor is who you are when nobody else is around is who you really are. Or who you are when it's only you and God, that's who you really are. And now Saul is, uh, it, 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 even though he's receiving more credit than he deserves, He's enraged about David getting more credit when David does deserve the credit. 
Who actually stood in the battle? Who actually put his life on the line? Who actually struck the Philistine down? Well, David did. David faced the enemy Saul should have faced, but didn't. So Saul wants credit for what he didn't do and simultaneously wants no criticism for what he failed to do. Welcome to the human condition, right? He's completely entrapped now by his own desire for the approval of people. And this is why living for the approval of other people is so miserable because you're living for things that aren't actually true. People may have said them, but now you're living for the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You end up mad when you get credit for something you didn't do because someone else gets more credit. I think, uh, let's go to the next screen just by way of reminder. There's three things. We can go on and put them all up. Identity, security, and happiness. The theme that we're carrying throughout the study of the life of David, because this is true of you. These are three things that exist in your heart. Like at the heart level of your heart, if I can say it that way, you live for your identity. Why are you? I know that's probably not the right way of asking the question, but that's what, that's what identity is. I exist too. What I want people to know about me is, uh, you know, in my high school class, it's kind of silly, but what the identity was, who's the funniest one? And, and that became my identity. It's what she was warning me about. You're going in the wrong direction. You don't want to go that way. Maybe your identity is uh, tied up in your job or your, the only identity, the only identity that'll ever bring lasting happiness is you belong to God through Christ. That's the only one. That's, that's the only identity that will ever bring security. Because when you establish, here's who I am, everything in your life becomes about finding security in that identity. And then at your level of happiness, or your peace, or joy, whatever term you might want to use, is on the basis of your identity being secure. But every identity that's not the identity God gives you is an insecure identity, and you'll never be happy. Does that make sense? And Dave, uh, not David, but Saul's a great example. He's very angry. Saul's identity, what he wanted to be, is the king that everyone loves. Here's what's wrong with Saul living for that identity. It's not the identity God gave him. God's actually said there's going to be a new king. And all of Saul's life from this point forward, when he eyed David in verse uh, verse 9, all of Saul's life is a raging fight to keep David from the throne, but God said David's going to have the throne. So it is a fight that will destroy him, and it is a fight that he will not win. It means something for our lives, friends, because Jesus is on the throne. Nobody's taking him off. Christ has all authority, power, and dominion. And the tragedy of fighting against that is you end up fighting against the one who loves you the most. The one who is for you and not uh, against you. So from verse 9, I think I've got this right. Um, verse 9 on, we will never again see Saul happy, joyful, or at rest. It will never happen again. What's he saying in verse 8? They have ascribed to David thousands, and to me they have ascribed 10,000. And what more can he have but the kingdom? He's saying, I don't have any security. None. So what is envy? Have we answered the question yet? Kind of two things at, at once, comparison and entitlement. Envy is comparison. They're given, they said, David struck down 10,000s and I've struck down thousands. I have less. He has more and I'm entitled to what he has. 
Can I ask you a deeply theological question? What are we entitled to? What are we actually entitled to? If you go back to Genesis 3, here's what the temptation really is. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says to them, paraphrasing a little bit, but you go study it. He's telling them, you're entitled to Godhood. Eat this fruit and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hebrew word is, of course, awareness, but it's also deciding, determining for yourself what is right, what is wrong. You're entitled to that. Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. When envy invades, that gets flipped, and you rejoice when others weep, and you weep when others rejoice. Think of how quickly Saul has forgotten about the miraculous deliverance David brought to him into Israel. It's almost like it never happened. And instead of being thankful for David, Saul is jealous of David. So friends, Saul, uh, uh, envy is a sin pattern. It's not a circumstance. Envy is not the result of circumstances. It, it is a controller no matter your circumstances. To put it another way, if you are not content this morning as a follower of Jesus with all that God has given you in Christ, you never will be. What is it that God can add to what he's already given you that would lead you to being content? You don't need something added or a circumstance to change. What we really need is greater grace and understanding what we have in Christ already. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind. It does not, help me church, envy. It does not boast. Can you see how it's working in Saul's life? The boast Saul killed his thousands isn't enough. You'll never love your neighbor when you envy your neighbor. So what is envy? Envy is comparison and entitlement. May you be freed up with this understanding. What God really owes you, he put on Christ at the cross. It's what we're entitled to. Praise God he hasn't given us what we deserve. Second is what does envy do? What does envy do? Well, uh, it's clear from the passage. First of all, envy robs you of all joy. Look, look again, everyone's celebrating. They got their tambourines out. They got their songs of joy. They got their musical instruments. And in the middle of all of it, Saul is seething. Hey, do you meet many joyful people? Do you meet many joyful people in your life? Do you know many people who genuinely celebrate when others succeed? Love does not envy. Love does not boast. So, so can, we, can we see how those two things go together? It feels like our entire culture, would anybody agree with this? It feels like our entire culture runs on envy and boasting. And those are the first two things in 1 Corinthians 13 that the Bible says love does not do. So to say that we have a culture that runs on envy and boasting is to say that we have a culture that lacks love. Those last days, the love of many will grow cold. Envy robs you of all joy. You can never love a person when you envy the person. 
it's probably worth saying at this point that this is going to have a huge impact on David's life. Now, now David is not eaten up by envy, but he's going to be targeted by someone who is. So here's real life. You're going to deal with some people who are really difficult. But I want us to take note of how David responds. You'll see this consistent throughout his life. He does not treat Saul the way Saul treats him. You'll see that again and again. So the first thing that envy does, it robs you of joy. And the second thing is envy grows and grows and grows. When I was in graduate school, I, um, first, uh, first month of there, I started working part-time at a, at a Chick-fil-A. It was in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, the, the manager said, uh, we'd love to have you, but uh, you need to know on the front end, this is one of the three busiest Chick-fil-A's in the country. And I said, oh, okay. Hardest job I've ever had in my life was working the register at Chick-fil-A. I just... and, and one of my, I think it was my first day there. I was kind of nervous, kind of keyed up. Person ordered lemonade, and I went to uh, get the lemonade, and I was so keyed up, I, I, I uh, started pouring it, but I broke the faucet or whatever the term is, and so it was just going to pour and keep pouring. So I filled up her cup. I'm looking around. It's true. One of the three busiest Chick-fil-A's in the, in the United States. Everybody's, and so I, so I grab another cup, and it's this whole game, and I'm just trying to fill it, and finally I just say, I need some help here. And somebody came along and was able to fix it. But it just kept, in that moment, the reason I still remember it is the panic that set in. Just kept coming. This is why, that's how envy is, y'all. There's no, no one will cut off the faucet except the grace of God. It just grows and grows and grows. And you want to stop filling up cup after cup after cup. You want, you want it to stop growing. It takes, it takes over. Verse 10 the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. The, the wording here, in essence, is saying that Saul gets more from God what he has asked for. Harmful spirit comes on him, and in other words, when Saul won't repent, those devastating sins grow. They increase. He's becoming more angry. He's becoming more envious. God judges us often by giving us more of what we choose. He said to Cain, sin is crouching out the door and its desire is for you. That's the nature of sin, y'all. If you lie instead of telling the truth, it's easier to lie the next time. You get to the point in your life where lies, man, they just come out. You don't even think about it anymore. I always put myself in the best-looking situation. I, I, I lie to my parents, or I lie to my teacher, or I lie to... And when you start lying to everybody, you start lying to yourself. And when you start believing those lies, <laughs> that's a terrible place to be. But not beyond the reach of God. Envy grows to the point that what once had brought him comfort. You notice what it said? David, David's still there, still faithful. He's playing the music that at one time had kind of soothed Saul, calmed him down. It no longer does. A 
It's true of us too. And what comes increasingly controlling on the inside comes out on the outside. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And verse 12 is so insightful. We're going to get to the bottom of all that's going on in Saul. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence, made him a commander of a thousand, kind of demoted him is what it's getting at. And he went out and came in before the other people. David still had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. If you were Saul's counselor, what would you tell him he needs? What advice would you give him? All of these things can be seen. His anger. David ascribed to David ten thousands, to me thousands. Demoting David. Raved within his house. Hurled the spear. Saul needs to be reconciled to God. We live in a generation where everything can be treated, nothing can be healed. The only healing for Saul is to be reconciled to God. Nothing in all the world can take the place of your relationship with your Creator. Nothing. Spend the rest of your life reading the books, most recent this, most recent that. Nothing in your life can replace your God-given need to have an abiding relationship with your Creator. Everything else is just a distraction from life. In Christ, there is life. So how do we overcome envy? Envy is a massively powerful force, but it's not the most powerful force. And to see how you overcome envy, let's rewind the tape and look again at Jonathan. Because Jonathan does not envy David. Why? Because he loves David. That's what the scripture says. So chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, some people might have looked at that and say, Jonathan just lost everything. Not true. He didn't lose everything. He's actually gaining, not losing. Because David is going to be the king. And Jonathan is contrite in heart. Trembles at the word of the Lord. And knows David is the rightful king. 
Love is the opposite of envy. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this or not. But so much of our anger, so much of our trouble is we envy God, His Godness. That He gets to be in charge. That He gets to be in control. That He knows the end from the beginning. That He gets to be God and I don't. So where does it begin? I think it probably begins with admitting that, confessing that, because it goes way down deep to the soul. If my soul is ever going to be knitted to the soul of my true king, the Lord Jesus, I'm going to have to do what Jonathan did, release claim on the throne, submit and surrender to the rightful king. But can I tell you a few things about this king? He's also a king who stripped himself Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though being in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you love him? Saul found David useful to a degree. Jonathan found David to be his friend. Do you you love God or do you find God useful? Friends, I want you to know that you are deeply loved by God. Jesus loves seeing you get what you do not deserve. And can we take a moment And imagine from God's perspective how absurd it is when we envy what he, when what we tend to envy in the world when he knows what he's offered us in Christ. Jesus loves giving you what you do not deserve so much that he willingly takes what you do deserve so that you can get what you don't deserve. Saul is angry and envious and jealous and absolutely miserable because he will not abdicate the throne. Salvation comes to your life when you look upon King Jesus and say, I surrender to you. I'm yours to command. And you will do that when you see truly by the grace of God the victory that he has had over sin, death, and the grave. The Goliath that we can never overcome, he has overcome. What would ever motivate you to surrender to the Lord? Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from the presence And made him a commander of a thousand. And he went and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings. For the Lord was with him. Friends, Jesus did not evade death. Could have. Could have gotten out of it every single time. One spear thrown, the other spoon. Do you see the envious are trying to nail the king to the wall. At Calvary, Jesus marches to the cross with 
holy determination. He doesn't have a thousand soldiers like David he could call. He's got myriad of angels who could come and defend him. But he willingly laid down his own life. And he had success, praise the Lord, in all his undertakings. For he is the Lord. It makes no sense for those who have been delivered through Christ in light of that victory to act like Saul when David gets the credit. So here's a couple of markers for your life that you know you've surrendered to Jesus. You love it when he gets the glory. You love it. In fact, you probably cut some people off. No, 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 no. I didn't struck down nobody. Not thousands, not hundreds, not dozens. Nobody. In fact, I'm the one that deserved to be struck down. I love him. I surrender to him. I submit to him. I love him. In a moment at communion, we'll declare this. Got a couple of quick applications. First one is, is this. Uh, please don't underestimate the power of envy to destroy your life. I, I heard someone, uh, or maybe read in a book, studying this passage, say this, and I thought, I, 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 I think that's right. Made the observation, as a counselor, this is the author of the book, said, uh, I've had a number of people come to me with all sorts of issues. He says, I've had people come to me and say, can we please sit down and talk? I've got a real issue with anger. He said, I've had other people say, we really need an appointment. I want you to help me. I've got a real issue with lust. Or I have a real issue with, uh, you know, saying things I don't, I want better control over my, my words. He says, in all my life, 40 years of ministry, I've never once had someone come to me and say, can we please sit down and talk? I have a real issue with envy. Why not? I think, number one, that's a really hard thing to admit. But number two, we underestimate it. Like if we were going to say here the real issues we face, envy wouldn't even make the list. That's why we need the help of the Lord. Because if God were making the list... He put it at the top because it's been there from the beginning. So don't underestimate the power of envy to destroy your life. You live in a culture, get your phone out, get your screen out, start scrolling, envy, boasting, envy, boasting, envy, boasting. So second, we need to cultivate contentment in Christ. Cultivate contentment in Christ. Years ago... uh, I read a a series of, uh, or or, um, a book written a long time ago about how to cultivate contentment. He said, uh, one of the Puritan authors said, instead of comparing your situation to people around you, and as we see here in Saul's case, we rarely do so with accurate information, start making these comparisons. One we've already highlighted. Number one, compare your life, your situation to what you deserve Hey, if we're here this morning and we have not eternally been separated from the presence of God, we have more than we deserve. 
So one, compare your situation to what you deserve. Second, compare your situation to what Christ experienced on earth. You got a bed to go sleep on tonight. How many of you got a comfortable bed, climate-controlled pillow? Jesus said, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. You had a friend who's done you wrong? Guess what? Judas stood in front of Jesus and planted a kiss on him, right? And, and, and said, here he is. Whatever difficulty you have, think about this. Jesus very likely suffered more and didn't ever need to, but he did so that he could reach you. And then here's one of my favorites. Compare your situation. Now, this is, this is helpful if you're a follower of Jesus. Compare your situation to what it soon will be. It's not that far off. It's not that far off. He will dry every tear. The former things will pass away. His dwelling place will be with us. And you can have confidence you'll be there, not if you found him useful, but have you found him glorious and beautiful. And then the third application for us, and we'll close, is pay attention to what you eye. I'm taking that from verse 9. Saul eyed David from that day on. What are you eyeing? In other words, what are you looking? You remember what David said? I love how if you look at all of Saul's issues, you can usually think of a psalm that David wrote that is in direct contrast to it. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken David, I'm sorry, Saul has set David always before him. So live less like Saul unto David and more like John the Baptist unto Jesus. He must become greater. Look carefully at Saul. And in the wise words of my junior year etymology SAT prep teacher, don't go that way. It's going to get worse for Saul. We're going to turn the page and you'll see that Saul becomes utterly a destroyer while David is a deliverer. I invite you to stand and we'll pray together. And then we're going to sing together. We'll have some time to think about what we've said and studied in the scripture. And then I'll come and lead us in a time of uh, communion. Would you bow your heads with me? Here's what I want to ask you to do. Here is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord. He who is contrite in heart. So here's the one main question for our time of response. Would you ask the Lord? Is envy... a controlling influence in my life. Just ask him. Be humble before him. And would you also ask, would you help me to see the healing, the wealth, the riches, the inheritance, the blessings I have in Christ?
Father, I pray in Jesus' name, these things go way down deep. They're not easy to talk about. They're not easy to admit often. They're not easy to confess. They're not easy, in fact, impossible for us on our own to kind of un- unwrap our own hearts. I mean, envy, it's like we're knitted together with envy often, and so we need help. Thank you that our help comes from the Lord. Help us to be people who surrender to the real king and are not eaten up by anger or jealousy, resentment, trying to control as we live for our own kingdom. But we'd be like Paul said, I've counted all things loss next to the surpassing greatness of knowing my king, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.